0: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for 2 weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu/dinodig. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day Seats, and we have a ton of dinosaur news to catch up on. But first, we'd like to thank our Stegosaurus patrons, Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, and Remy Rodriguez.
1: Thank you so much. We really appreciate all your support. And if you want to join this growing group of people, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino.
0: First in the news is an article published in Acta Geologica Sinica by Shen Kaijie and others about a new troodontid from Liaoning in China, which shouldn't be surprising because it's like the third one we've talked about this year, I think. (laughs) This one, again, is from the Liaoning province, and it's close to the dinosaur discovery we talked about two weeks ago, which was Liaoning venator. You know, Liaoning China, Liaoning Venator.
1: Surprise.
0: Yeah, this one is named Dalianosaurus Liaoningensis. So rather than Liaoningsaurus, it's Liaoningensis. And Dalian is a nearby city in Liaoning. So another very regionally named Chinese dinosaur. Unlike Liaoning Venator, Daliansaurus is in a typical death pose, Whereas, remember, leon Venator was kind of curled up like it was in an embryo in like the fetal position. This one's all curled back with its neck and its tail curved up over its back. So it's kind of like doing one of those yoga moves. What's that one called? The bow, I think. Sure, Pretty sure. Anyway, <laughs> like most rhodontids, possibly all, it's got everyone's favorite sickle claw preserved. And... It's also got just about everything else preserved. It's got its tiny serrated teeth, which are a couple millimeters long. It's got the skull, tail, limbs, all the good stuff. And just like the other Troodontids from this formation, Dalionsaurus is from the early Cretaceous. And unfortunately, it was smuggled around for a while. So the specimen is kind of in this weird, neatly rounded oval piece of substrate. And it was messed with a little bit before the researchers got their hands on it. So parts of the skull were reconstructed before they recovered it so that it looks more complete than Mm -hmm. it actually is. I didn't see too much about how that might have negatively impacted it, like if it was overprepared or if there were other issues with the fossil from it being in, you know, non-professional hands. But it looked pretty well done from what I could tell in the pictures.
1: Yeah, that's not the worst one we've heard about. One where the tail was glued on (laughs) something and it wasn't the tail and it was a bad kind of glue.
0: I know sometimes they stick together multiple fossils to make it look more complete when it isn't. This one, if they stretched it out because it's kind of curled up, would be about three feet long or about a meter. They defined a new group called Sinovenatorinae to include this dinosaur, Dalionsaurus as well as Sinovenator, Sinusinasus, and May. So it really only has those four dinosaurs in it, which is kind of surprising since that formation has at least a few others that we know of. And they expect that the whole group was covered in feathers. So yet another Troodontid for any Troodontid fans out there.
1: (laughs) And fans of feathered dinosaurs.
0: Yep. Next is another article that was primarily found by Chinese researchers, and it was published in Gondwana Research by Lida Xing and others. And you might recognize that name because last year, we talked about a pair of discoveries that she made with other scientists. Specifically, there was a pair of wings found in amber, as well as that dinosaur tail that was found in amber. And at the time they kind of hinted that there might be more amber finds being published in the future. So here's another one. Good. This one's much more complete than the other finds. And with the naked eye, really what you see in the amber is this really striking bird foot near the surface of the amber, and it's almost white. Mm. It looks really cool, like a hawk foot or something, although very small, but it's got pretty sharp talons on it. And then with a CT scanner, they were really surprised because all of a sudden they could see about half of the body of a full bird. They <laughs> could see most of a skull, beak, and neck, a partial wing, a full set of primitive flight feathers, even though it's unclear whether or not it could fly, as well as part of a leg and then that foot sticking out near the surface. So a pretty complete baby bird. Well, <laughs> It's cute because it's a baby. hmm <laughs> It's an enantiornith, which means that it's on the kind of true bird path. You know, it's within AVs and it had tiny teeth in its beak, which is kind of creepy looking. It almost makes it look like it has a serrated beak or something. They think that the bird was probably less than two weeks old based on some of the molting pattern it has going on and then also just how small and undeveloped it looks but it does look precocial, which basically means that it was probably able to fend for itself.
1: Yeah, it's got teeth, and you know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> we talked about precocial dinosaurs a little bit with sauropods and how they're basically like miniature versions of the adults and they could kind of do their own thing. And it looks like this bird probably could too. Interestingly, it has more feathers than we'd see on a modern bird of its age. And that might mean that it was out on its own earlier than modern birds, and then getting stuck in amber. And,
1: oh, I didn't know enough. Yeah.
0: And that kind of helps us, because if they're just waiting in a nest, they're unlikely to get, you know, trapped in amber. They'll probably either get eaten or nothing, but they start wandering out into the big bad world. <laughs> they can get trapped. It's estimated to be about 99 million years old, and they nicknamed it Bologna after a local type of bird. With really close up microscopy, they can see really tiny feathers on its feet and they almost look translucent, although they think while it was live, they were probably white. There are also feathers preserved on other parts of the body where they can see some that were likely brown and dark gray, so they got a little bit of information about the potential pattern of colors on the bird. And like I said, unfortunately, only part of it is preserved And the other part was probably either eaten by something, or it might have just eroded since it wasn't fully covered in amber.
1: Poor baby bird.
0: Yeah, (laughs) it didn't last very long. The bird will be on display at the Shanghai Museum of Natural History through July 2017, so you should definitely check it out if you're in the area. Although all you'll be able to see is probably the little foot. They might have some of these cool pictures that they had in the paper up, though. That'd be a good addition. Cool. Cool. Yeah, and I kept referring to it as a bird. I think most people would agree that it's a bird, but technically it's an an enantiornith.
1: Next, a fossil found back in 1965 has recently been confirmed to be a dinosaur egg. So what happened is a high school student at the time, Yoshiharu Shimizu, and his friend found the egg in Shimonoseki Yamaguchi Prefecture in Japan. The egg has been broken into eight pieces, and it's probably a theropod egg. It's from the early Cretaceous, and it's now the earliest known discovery of a dinosaur fossil in Japan. Before that, the earliest discovery was of an upper arm of a dinosaur found in 1978.
0: So by earliest, you mean...
1: When it was found. Okay. Not how old it is. So... Yoshiharu Shimizu kept the fossil pieces at his home, and he had sketches and photos and photo negatives. And he asked his nephew, who works for the government in Yamaguchi to find out what the fossils were. Shimizu, I'm not sure what the full story is, but apparently he found the full egg. He took photos of it and then broke it into pieces with a hammer.
0: No. <laughs>
1: Maybe he was testing it out. The article didn't really say.
0: Or looking to see if there was a baby dinosaur inside it or something.
1: Something. So his sketches show it was either spherical or oval in shape with a diameter of 4 inches or 10 centimeters. And the shell's about 3.7 millimeters thick, which is thicker than other dinosaur eggs found in Japan. They tend to be 0. 0.1 to 0. 0.7 millimeters.
0: Hmm. I wonder if they glued it all back together. Because they do that all the time.
1: Oh, Yeah. There weren't too many specifics here. Hmm. It's mostly about the fact that it was confirmed to be a dinosaur fossil.
0: Or maybe it's not even around anymore. It might just be the pictures of it.
1: No, they have the eight pieces. Oh, okay. And next, thanks to Kevin, who shared this one with us via Facebook. So, the first theropod skull has been found in British Columbia. A Vancouver Island chiropractor, Rick Lambert, was on vacation with his wife, Sonia, camping in Tumblr Ridge, British Columbia, when he found the skull. And it's a tyrannosaur skull. They found it while hiking. Rick had studied and worked in geology and was surprised to find the skull. <laughs> I can imagine anyone who comes across a dinosaur skull yeah. might be surprised.
0: Especially a tyrannosaur skull.
1: Yeah. But he saw the teeth, they're about 12 total, and took a photo and then noted the location for the Peace Region Paleontology Research Center. The skull has a boomerang-shaped bone from the upper jaw between the eye and nose and teeth that project down, and the full skull is probably around 3 feet or 1 meters long. Hmm. The rock slab where it was found moved to that area about 14 years ago, probably after being extracted from a quarry in the region, so scientists need to find the source of the rock to figure out the actual area where the fossil came from and look for the body.
0: Yeah, I wonder how far away, because that'd be a large piece of rock to move. Yes. But maybe it's one of those things where they're like setting up a barrier for cars not to drive off a cliff or something like that. I don't
1: know an exciting find on a camping trip, though.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I want to find a T-Rex skull, or I guess it could technically be a Gorgosaurus or something.
1: (laughs) Speaking of finds in Canada, Aaron Vanderreest, an undergrad student at the University of Alberta, is naming a dinosaur after his late mother. It's a really sweet... Kind of sad, but mostly sweet story. So he enrolled in school originally in 2005, but ran out of money. So he worked for seven years as a hazardous materials environmental consultant. His mother was diagnosed with cancer for a second time in early 2013 and passed away three months later. But before she passed, she told him not to waste his inheritance, and he used it to return to school to become a paleontologist. A few years ago, he found the hips of a raptor-like animal in Dinosaur Provincial Park, and he will name the species after his mother's maiden name, McMaster, though the full name's not yet decided. And he's also recently found a horned dinosaur that he named Tink, since his mother was a fan of (laughs) Tinkerville. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, it's a nice way to honor his mom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's cool that he managed to spend his inheritance and become a successful paleontologist. Mm -hmm. And next is an article published in the Anatomical Record by Gregory S. Paul that's all about the never-ending debate on how sauropods held their head (laughs) and neck. (laughs) So most of the recent depictions have sauropods holding their necks... Roughly parallel to the ground, or maybe even closer to the ground. And that makes me think of that Eeyore style Sarmientosaurus that I think we talked about last year. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it's a lot of work to keep your head up.
0: Yeah, that's. But then,
1: like, kinking your neck or keeping it down. I don't know. I'm just thinking.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of different rationales behind it. There are some that are depicted with their necks more vertical, like a giraffe. You might think of Giraffe Titan, for instance, or Brachiosaurus. And we've talked about a few approaches to figuring out how they might have held their necks. One of them with Sarmientosaurus is kind of that inner ear angle. And then we've also talked about the blood pressure that would be required to hold the head up. That was one of the main reasons why people think they couldn't have held their heads up because they might have fainted or something due to lack of blood supply to their brain. There's also the strength of their bones, determining whether or not they could rear up. There's the likely diet that you might be able to determine from their teeth and whether or not that's in trees or on the ground. And then finally is kind of that neutral position argument with, you know, it's a lot of effort to hold up a head. So typically that neutral position leads to a more horizontal or even slightly downward sloping neck. But Paul points out that a lot of modern animals feed in positions that are really far from their neutral position. One example is cows, their neutral position, if you look at their skeleton, is with their head kind of pointed up. But when they feed, their head is all the way down to the ground, which would look pretty awkward if you just looked at a skeletal reconstruction of it. He also points to a pair of fused vertebrae from a neck of a Camarasaurus with about 10 degrees of angle between them, which has plenty of deflection to get to a giraffe-like kind of position of a neck hmm. and he says that it's possible that a dinosaur could have bent to this death pose while <laughs> alive because obviously that angle is preserved from where the animal was when it died not while it was living but he's saying you know it probably could have bent that way while it was alive
1: sounds uncomfortable when you put it like that
0: <laughs> i guess so and how a lot of dinosaurs you know bend in those crazy angles when they die mm-hmm. But the argument that Paul puts together is really all about how high they could have reached, because he sees that as the main selective pressure for getting that long neck. And it looks like, in his opinion, that their bones were strong enough that they could have reared on their hind legs, even things like diplodocids that have shorter legs, as well as things like brachiosaurids that have those those taller front legs, they still could have reared on their smaller back legs. And he also poses that they probably could have leaned kind of on their tail, sort of like some older depictions of sauropods have them using that tail as sort of a third support. And he draws some comparisons to giraffes as well as those giant ground sloths. And he has all these (laughs) skeletal reconstructions showing similarities between them. He does say that ultimately some sauropods with short necks may have grazed on low vegetation, but most long-necked dinosaurs likely reared up to get to the highest vegetation possible. And he thinks they might have been able to reach up to 20 meters, which is well over 60 feet by doing that kind of thing.
1: Well, no competition, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't give a specific mechanism for the blood pressure. He does say that that would be a problem, but he believes that it could be possible with either a siphon or auxiliary arterial pumps Which I think is a fancy way of saying extra little hearts. (laughs) And he points to a couple of other kind of remarkable evolutionary things that animals have come up with. So he doesn't think that's too far out there. So it doesn't really settle the debate because it doesn't have a full mechanism for how a dinosaur could have reared up. But It does give a few good reasons for why they might have done it. Specifically, angiosperms weren't around for most of the time sauropods were, and those are like the kind of lower, typically flowering plants. So a lot of the nutrients in plants were up in higher trees like conifers and other non-flowering plants. So in order to get at them, it makes sense that you would want to have a really long neck. And then... He says that after the dinosaurs were wiped out, there were all these angiosperms everywhere. So there wasn't as much of a selective pressure to reach these higher levels of elevation. So we haven't seen another sauropod-like thing evolve because there's plenty of food available near the ground. Interesting. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty interesting point. I really want to see someone try and model a good sauropod and possibly try to come up with these auxiliary arterial pumps (laughs) slash extra hearts or maybe come up with a better siphon because we did see some people try it and then fail spectacularly with the blood or fake blood kind of flooding a small stage that they were (laughs) designing it on but Just because they could only make it so tall doesn't mean that it's completely impossible. There might be some other mechanism to make dinosaurs capable of reaching higher heights. I think a good simulation of sauropods is in order to see how high they could have reached. I agree.
1: More on sauropods.
0: (laughs) I'm starting to wonder, though, if we'll ever be able to figure this out, though, because most of this stuff won't fossilize. So it'd be pretty hard to tell if they had these extra hearts or what kind of siphon they might have had. And then how high they raised their neck really boils down to things that we'll never know if they had or not.
1: But there's new techniques, new technologies.
0: I hope so. I hope they come up with more things. And on that note, there's a successful recreation of some dinosaur biomechanics. Specifically, Matt White and others published an article in Pure J where they tried to differentiate between ornithopod and theropod tracks. Specifically, they looked at the lark quarry in Australia, which appears to have two different trackmakers, very cleverly named Trackmaker A and Trackmaker B.
1: Good. <laughs> Easy to tell apart.
0: Yeah. So the prevailing hypothesis is that Trackmaker A is probably either an ornithopod or a theropod. And to test that, they 3D printed a life-sized, flexible Australovenator foot to create some footprints. That
1: sounds awesome.
0: Yeah. So they used an emu as a guide (laughs) to add soft tissue to an australovenator skeleton foot. And then they used a formula to add sheaths to the claws because one of the big things about these tracks is kind of giveaway is if they have big claws, you figure it's more likely to be a theropod than an ornithopod. And then they pushed the foot into different muds with various motions to try to emulate it walking through the mud.
1: That sounds fun.
0: Yeah. So after all was said and done, they found that their prints of Ostralovenator resemble those of Trackmaker A, but not of Trackmaker B. So maybe B was an ornithopod or just not Ostralovenator.
1: Yeah, I think they talked about they want to do more of these kinds of simulations.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. And we kind of saw some precursors to this with guinea fowl walking in mud and other birds that they've been recording, walking slowly through different sediments to try to see what kind of trackways they make and what, depending on the sediment, what kind of fossilized footprint that would end up making.
1: It's good to study the birds. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of which, today I was walking in San Francisco on Embarcadero so a bunch of seagulls, I mean, there's a lot of food around, so they were kind of dive bombing into the people. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, they didn't hit anybody because they know what they're doing, but I was just thinking like, wow, that's really scary when the seagull was coming towards me.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you freaked out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can only imagine a flying dinosaur.
0: <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to talk about their feet, but seagulls have like webbed well,
1: feet. And plus we- there's only concrete there, so you're not really seeing what's going on when yeah. you're stepping.
0: Not like the other day when we were at the beach and there were all these like duck prints and goose prints all over the place from them walking around with their little babies. Yeah. Yep. Birds are pretty nice. Going to be a birding podcast soon. Pretty sure.
1: Maybe. I wouldn't describe birds as nice. That's not, that's not my go-to word for birds.
0: Or like <laughs> terrifying.
1: <laughs>
0: you can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th head over to cncc.edu/dinodig you'll get all of the details just make sure that you register online by May 31st and again that is cncc.edu/dinodig d i n o d i g carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you So happy announcement. The Museum of the Rockies in Montana announced early in June that John Scanella has been named the John R. Horner Curator of Paleontology. And we interviewed John when we went on our epic dinosaur road trip last summer. Back then, he was just named the interim curator because Jack Horner had recently retired. And Scanella has been at the Museum of the Rockies since 2013. We think his new title is well-deserved, right?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. So congratulations. Scanella's research has been focused on ceratopsians. He and Jack Horner proposed in 2014 that Taurosaurus was an adult triceratops, which is a very controversial topic, as we know. Yep. (laughs) And now he will be setting the research agenda for field research curating the paleontology collection, developing exhibits, and participating in outreach and education. And in July, his first original exhibition, Dinosaur Dynasties, the Evolution of Montana's Dinosaurs, will open at the Maifun Dinosaur Museum in Kumamoto, Japan. Sounds pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I didn't realize that that position would involve working with other dinosaur museums, too. That's really interesting. Yeah.
1: But then if you think about the exposure that Jack Horner has had, it makes sense.
0: That's true. Yeah.
1: Next, almost 80 years ago, the hadrosaur Augustinolophus was found in the Pinoche Hills in Fresno County in California. And we've talked about this dinosaur before. We'll probably talk about it a lot since it may well become the official state dinosaur for California. So we're pretty excited. There weren't many dinosaurs in California since a lot of it was underwater. But you can see a partially reconstructed skull and tail of Augustinolophus at the Natural History Museum in L.A., and this dinosaur was probably about 30 feet long. It was found in 1939 by scientists from the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. And in 1940, a second smaller skeleton, probably of a juvenile, was found nearby. No other hadrosaurs have been found so far west before. Augustine Alophis is named for Gretchen Augustine, a major supporter of the LA Museum's Dinosaur Institute, and the species name, Morrisi is in honor of paleontologist William J. Morris, who classified it as a new species in 1973, so very fitting. Augustine Alophis had a little crest that stuck up from its skull, and it was both bipedal and quadrupedal, and had skin like a beaded lizard with bumpy scales. It was found in marine rocks, which means it probably died near the shore where it probably lived, and then was washed into the ocean. The hope is that having an official California state dinosaur will reignite interest in fossils and dinosaurs in science education.
0: Reignite? I think people are pretty interested in it.
1: Yeah. Well, so this article was written, it was a Fresno article, and it was specifically talking about Fresno County.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe not so much over there. I don't know.
1: I don't know. Well, since the dinosaur was found there, that would be exciting probably spark a lot of interest. True, yeah. There's an interesting article about some national monuments in Utah, specifically the Grand Staircase Escalante Monument and Bears Ears. So in 1996, Utah's Grand Staircase Escalante became a national monument. And because of that, there was new funding and resources, which led to a whole bunch of new dinosaur discoveries, including a tyrannosaur called Pteratophonius korei which was found in what's now called the Rainbows and Unicorns site. (laughs) Great name. And there's hope that the same thing will happen to Bears Ears, which is east of Grand Staircase Escalante and was proclaimed to be a national monument last December. Though both sites are currently under examination and it's unclear if they will stay national monuments. But hopefully it sounds like it's done great things. Researchers think that Bears Ears... Every
0: time you say that, I'm like, really? Bears Ears? It's a good name. Not as good as rainbows and unicorns, though.
1: No, no. (laughs) But anyway, the researchers think that bear's ears could have, quote, different stories from earlier times, how four-legged creatures first emerged from the sea and how dinosaurs later rose to dominate the planet. This is according to Inside Science. And it's got areas that date back to 200 million years ago and even earlier and includes land and ocean deposits. So sounds like a lot of exciting discoveries that could come out of this place.
0: A lot of exciting stuff in those bear's ears. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Who knew? Not just stuffed with fluff.
0: (laughs) Was that a Winnie the Pooh joke? (laughs) It
1: was. (laughs) 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 Next, the University of Alberta paleontologist Scott Persons has been studying dinosaur scales this is according to cvc so one find is of a saurolophus a hadrosaur that had a bony head crest and it's been found in alberta canada and the gobi desert in mongolia and the skeletons of saurolophus found in canada and mongolia are similar but they have very different skin there's well-preserved skin that's been found from both sites so the best skin fossils come from an area of the gobi desert named the dragon's tomb how does that compare to rainbows and unicorns too intense. Too intense, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these skin fossils have small scales and occasional large scales, but sorolophus from Canada do not have the large scales. So the Mongolian sorolophus also have a row of large vertical semicircular scales on its spine and some scales on the tail are arranged in a stripe pattern. But the Canadian sorolophus has a more circular pattern. So the Mongolian sorolophus may have been striped and the Canadian sorolophus may have been spotted. Huh. And that means the two species evolved after they moved from one landmass to the other. There used to be a land bridge between Alaska and eastern Russia back then, which is how they ended up on different continents, even though they lived around the same time. It's interesting how much you can tell just by these small preservations.
0: Yeah, saying that one of them might have been spotted because of the pattern of scales is an interesting thing to say, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Next, Dinosaur Home published a post about Dravidosaurus, a stegosaur described in 1979, and the full name is Dravidosaurus planfordi. It was described by Yadagiri and Ayasami and was found in southern India, and it lived in the late Cretaceous. Its discovery, the interesting part, is that it showed that stegosaurs lived into the late Cretaceous. But in 1996, Chatterjee and Rudra said that it was a gnomum dubium, since no skull or plates were found and only plesiosaur remains were found in the site where the holotype had been originally discovered. But Peretta's Superbiola recently suggested Dravidosaurus was a valid species since there are two photos in the original description that show a tooth similar to a Kentrasaurus tooth, as well as photos of bones and dermal armor. Galton said Dravidosaurus had a small skull, a long neck, and large triangular plates and a tail spike with a large middle region that made it harder to break when it was fighting. So if it's a valid species, it's curious why this stegosaur survived so long in India. One reason could be because India was relatively isolated at the time, so there were fewer outside threats or new predators. Also, India may not have had as many angiosperms at the time, which replaced the vegetation that stegosaurs like to eat. But yeah, pretty cool because usually you think stegosaurs having died off way before then.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Next, we've talked about the history of dinosaurs before, but More Than a Dodo recently posted this interesting article about the quote unquote birth of dinosaurs. By that, I mean when people started studying dinosaurs. So it started back in April 1872 with Richard Owen, which we've talked about, when he introduced Dinosauria in his paper in the report for the British Association for the Advancement of Science. And the name means terrible lizard, and he based it on three genera, Megalosaurus, Iguanodon, and Hylaeosaurus. And Megalosaurus was a nine-meter-long carnivore that lived in England in the Jurassic and was the first-named dinosaur. It was found in 1824 and described by William Buckland. Iguanodon lived in the Cretaceous, was named by Gideon Mantell in 1825, and Hylaeosaurus was an armed herbivore with long spines on its neck and shoulders, named by Gideon Mantell in 1833. But now, there's around 1,200 species or so of dinosaurs, and a lot of new techniques for studying them. You know, we've got CT scanning, statistical techniques, lots more stuff.
0: That number varies a lot depending on How picky you are, though. It can be as low as like six or 700, depending on what you include.
1: If you're a lumper or a splitter.
0: And if you just include Nomen dubium.
1: True, true.
0: Nomen (laughs) dubia.
1: Well, to help keep track of this growing number of dinosaur species, because regardless, there's a lot more. Gunna Bivens has created a large Google Docs spreadsheet as a database of all dinosaur specimens. There's over 1,500 entries so far. So even more than we were speculating earlier.
0: Well, those are specimens. So there's like 20 T-Rex specimens oh, in there. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's a good point. And that's yeah. just one species.
1: <laughs> um, anyone can leave comments. So the entries are based on papers, and then there's actually a lot of details about each specimen. So it's It's really cool, and it's an amazing amount of work, I'm sure, putting that all together.
0: Yeah, I I took a glance at it. I like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you leave any comments? I did not. Maybe later. (laughs) Maybe. Next, the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs published a piece that was comparing Velociraptor and Raptor, which I thought was pretty cool. So they're both Dromaeosaurs, and Velociraptor is, of course, famous from Jurassic Park. And now, because of Jim Kirkland and his team, who are working on excavating this 9-ton block of Utahraptors, we know a little more about those dinosaurs, so... Velociraptor was found in Mongolia in the 1920s in the Flaming Cliffs, and it was small, about turkey size. Utah Raptor was found in 1993 in Utah, around the time Jurassic Park was coming out. And Velociraptor had caudal rods that kept its tail straight, may have helped it balance. It also had these elongated metatarsals and a short femur, so it was probably pretty fast. Utahraptor, on the other hand, had a longer femur, high neural spines, and a robust ilium, which may have meant it had strong back muscles for climbing, though it's not clear if it climbed up on its prey or not. So, Utah Raptor was also much bigger. It's about the size of the Velociraptors as they're portrayed in Jurassic Park. Both of them had sickle claws, and it'll be interesting to see what more scientists learn as they dig out the group of Utah Raptors from that nine ton block. Yeah, it's
0: interesting comparing Scott Hartman's silhouettes with kind of the skeletons put into them of uh, velociraptor versus utah raptor because utah raptor looks so much more robust mm-hmm. it's not just the ilium but also the pubis and some other parts of the kind of the bulk of the utah raptor that makes it so much beefier yeah. than the velociraptor it looks a lot smaller and nimbler
1: very true Next, the Natural History Museum of Utah posted about their Cleveland Lloyd exhibit in response to all the articles with headlines that the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry mystery had been solved. Hmm. Though, if you read through the articles, they often said that nothing conclusive was determined. And we talked about this on our show. The exhibit shows multiple hypotheses as to why so many dinosaur bones are at that quarry and we've discussed this as well and the natural history museum of utah said that although this latest paper seems to show more evidence for the bloat and float hypothesis there are no plans currently to alter the exhibit because it explains how the bones were preserved but not how the animals died upstream and also the main message of the exhibits that science involves a lot of questioning and the exhibit is meant to promote how the scientific method works
0: and it doesn't explain, like we were saying, why there were so many predators in one place.
1: Yeah, so still a lot of questions. Yeah, definitely. Mystery is definitely not solved yet. Not completely, anyway.
0: Yeah, so it could be multiple things at once, too.
1: hmm We've talked about Dinosaurs in the Wild before, which is the prehistoric safari experience that opened in Birmingham, UK on June 24th, but I thought it was worth bringing up again because... Uh, Blue Loop wrote this piece on the storytelling and science behind Mm -hmm. the experience. Yeah. So for those who haven't been, and for our listeners who have been, please tell us about your experience. But if you don't know, there's these live sets and actors, along with computer-generated imagery and animatronics. And Tim Haynes, the creative director of Dinosaurs in the Wild, and also the producer of Walking with Dinosaurs on BBC... And the drama of Primeval said that he wanted to, quote, give people a visual quality of experience that they won't have had anywhere else. With Dinosaurs in the Wild, the aim is to get people as close to dinosaurs as possible, he said. So the key is to have strong storytelling. And you jump back in time, you see dinosaurs, and you tour the labs before this thrilling finish, whatever that may be. Hmm. So you travel back in time with a company called Chronotex Enterprises, which invented time travel in the 1970s and now has opened up a base to the public, Time Base 67.
0: Yeah, when you go to their website, it's all about that kind of thing. It talks about Chronotex and time travel and stuff.
1: Yeah, (laughs) so they've extended the story. Yeah, And then when you get to the base, you move to a vehicle and you're surrounded by herds of dinosaurs. And the whole experience is 70 minutes long and you're taken through with a guide. And I guess there's multiple labs because you spend about six minutes at each lab. And there's some interactive elements, lots of performances. In one lab, you see a scientist performing an autopsy of a pachycephalosaurus. In another, you see the heart of an alamosaurus in a glass cylinder. And then you see how much energy it takes to pump blood up its neck
0: it's probably a large cylinder
1: oh i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> there's also a hatchery where you see eggs communicating with each other and some dakota raptor hatchlings that sounds pretty cute yeah and then you go to this lookout and you see live dinosaurs and you can also stick your hands in dinosaur poop and you can test your arm strength against a T. Rex's. i'm sure you'll lose every time yeah Haynes said that, quote, everything is designed to make you think that the screen of the monitor is glass of a window. And there's also this VR experience. Uh, you can see through the eyes of herbivores and carnivores. Hmm. So as an herbivore, you can see 180 degrees around you. And as a carnivore, it's much more focused, just like in real life. Hmm. So education is a big part of the experience, and there are packages they developed specifically for teachers with resources for English and science lessons. So, for example, in one module, students pretend to be a TV journalist writing a report. And from now until October 7th, Dinosaurs in the Wild will be in Birmingham, and then it will go to Event City in Manchester, and there's plans to move it to London and eventually to an as-yet-unannounced other country which I kind of hope it would be the US. But That'd be nice. We'll see, yeah. They said if it's successful enough, they'll clone it, so then they can go to multiple sites.
0: Yeah, sounds really cool. I definitely want to see it if any of you guys go there.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of listeners who have gone to exhibits... <laughs> We want to thank Vince, who sent us pictures and videos of his recent trip to the Jurassic World exhibit in Chicago in the Field Museum. Yeah,
0: it sounds really cool. We would love to go to it. We're still trying to figure out if we can make it there somehow. But yeah, we heard from Brad Jost when he went to the one in the same one, I guess, when it was in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And he really enjoyed it. But I don't think there's any way he wouldn't since he's a huge Jurassic Park fan.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, Vince said it costs $15.
0: I think that's cheaper than it was while it was in Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, that sounds... maybe. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But he says the dinosaurs moved much better than the dinosaurs in the Jurassic Quest exhibit. From what I remember, a friend telling me when she saw it in Melbourne, where it originated, you kind of move through the scenes of the movie in a way.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you like arrive to the park and then you kind of go through different areas with different dinosaurs
1: right yeah and vince's videos and photos you can see uh, all the dinosaurs in cages like this is the velociraptor that i think tries to get out or the t-rex that also tries to get out but then it gets electrocuted hmm. or an electric shock and in the videos there were a lot of moments where music from the movie or oh, music really? similar to the movie is playing yeah that's cool Yeah. So sounds like a really great exhibit. And thank you again, Vince, for sharing with us.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing.
1: So we have a number of events going on this summer, starting with the Wollaton Hall in Nottingham, UK, which actually had to shut down for a couple weeks to get ready for a large dinosaur exhibit from China, which includes a 75 foot or 23 meter long Mementosaurus that will be rearing up on its legs. Cool. Yeah. So the museum reopens June 30th for the launch of the exhibition, and it took 50 days for the fossils to travel from China to the UK Mm. and six specially trained technicians to assemble it. There's 23 exhibits, including a gigantoraptor, and the exhibit shows how dinosaurs evolved into birds, and it's going to run until October 29th. On June 10th, the Museums of Western Colorado hosted the 30th Annual Dinosaur Day at their Dinosaur Journey location, and they had a bunch of activities and fundraising events. The University of Kansas is working with students and volunteers to excavate a T-Rex in Montana this summer. Paleontologist David Burham is leading the expedition. So far, they've found 25% of the skull, 60% of the hips, and 45% of the legs of a female juvenile T-Rex.
0: I wonder why they think it's female.
1: That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe Hmm. they tell you when you go on the excavation (laughs) with them. So a lot of what they found is already on display at the KU Natural History Museum. They've crowdfunded more than $15,000 so they can find the rest of the dinosaur. And Brunham said he hopes that they get the upper skull bones, more backbones, and arms. Maybe it's in the hips.
0: They found a bunch of eggs inside it?
1: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The Wyoming Dinosaur Center is hosting a week of paleontology programs this July for high school students. Sessions run July 10th to 14th, and they're currently accepting applications. So enrollment is limited, but there are college credits available. And as a student, you work in the field and the lab with paleontologists and technicians, and it's designed for students who are interested in a career in earth sciences. The North Dakota Geological Survey is hosting four events this summer, so volunteers can help dig for bones, and there's sites near Wahala in northeast North Dakota, Medora in southwest North Dakota, Bismarck, and near Dickinson. Sites of fossils ranging from 30 to 80 million years ago, so not all dinosaurs, but these fossil digs started in 2000 to promote tourism, and there's now two to 300 people who participate each year. Wow. Yeah, and it's also helped with North Dakota's research program. Events take place June 26th to 30th in Dickinson, July 13th to 16th in Medora, July 24th to 28th in Bismarck, and August 8th through 12th in Pembina Gorge. And most events are free with a $10 deposit to reserve your spot, though the Pembina Gorge dig costs $89, and that's because it includes food, transportation, and a souvenir. And you have to be 12 years or older to dig.
0: Sounds like a good deal.
1: It does, Yeah. <laughs>
0: Especially if you're already near North Dakota and you don't have to drive a couple thousand miles.
1: Do you think the souvenir is like a little fossil maybe? I don't know. Probably not if they're trying to research. I think
0: it might be like a t-shirt or a hat.
1: Oh, could be. (laughs) <laughs> the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum also has a lot of events this summer, so they're offering regular tours to the Pipestone Creek bone bed and a free monthly lecture series, and they're also taking volunteers for the field and the lab. For kids, there's summer day camps for ages 4 to 10 and art at the museum camps for ages 9 through 12.
0: I would love that.
1: You're a bit old. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I can't pass for 12? No, you're, oh. you're too tall. I guess You stand so. out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> In Louisville, Kentucky, Ed Dana, who's the founder of Kentucky Journey to the Oceans, is working on building an aquarium and dinosaur park to the city. The park is called Worlds of Fun, and there's plans to have animatronic dinosaurs. The estimated cost is $80 million, and half the funds have already been raised, so it could open as early as 2021, which isn't that far off. Next, Dawn Dinos, which is a five-year research project that's studying the dawn of dinosaurs, and they have a website, dawndinos.com, if you want to learn (laughs) more. They recently started working with the City of London Academy on an after-school outreach project. So starting in mid-June, they've been holding a series of five dino art club sessions for students ages 11 to 18. And students work in different mediums, clay, collage, origami, art straws, and they reconstruct sketches of extinct animals, which sounds cool.
0: I wouldn't think of art straws as a medium, but I guess so. I,
1: yeah, I could see it being really cool, but probably would take a while to put together.
0: If you're doing, you're thinking like life-size version? No,
1: no, not even. Just getting that structure. Because you can make one straws. out of one
0: straw if you just did like a 2D eh, thing. That
1: doesn't sound great. No,
0: it doesn't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm thinking lots of texture. Yeah. Next, thanks to Michelle who shared this one with us via email. So from July 1st to October 31st of this year, The Denver Zoo in Colorado has a special exhibit called Dinos Live at the Denver Zoo, and there's 21 dinosaurs around the zoo, and every Saturday in July, visitors can go to the Dinos Prehistoric Party from 6.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. For those who live in Denver, there's also the Denver Museum of Nature and Science that has Ultimate Dinosaurs, an exhibit that's going to run later in the year, October 6th to January 15th. And this exhibit displays large dinosaurs from Africa, South America, and Madagascar. There's activities for all ages, and Michelle said that she and Remy will be at both. So, hey, please let us know what you think when you go. Yeah. Next, thanks to Chris, who shared this one with us via Twitter. So the Natural History Museum in London gave a live tour, which has been recorded so anyone can watch, because obviously the live tour has passed. (laughs) (laughs) But in it, Paul Barrett gave the tour, and people could ask questions, and there was footage behind the scenes and images of dinosaurs, and we'll post the link so you can watch.
0: Yeah, I love seeing behind the scenes at museums. It's so cool.
1: Mhm. Especially where they store the fossils. Yeah. Next the Morrison Natural History Museum, which is owned by the town of Morrison in Colorado. That's cool, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has on display the world's first hatchling stegosaurus footprints and the first footprints from an infant apotosaurus. (laughs) Sounds Mm -hmm. so cute. So these footprints came from Morrison, and the baby stegosaurus tracks are about the size of a silver dollar, and they were in a boulder that was along a road near a dinosaur quarry for 70 years, so in plain sight. They were found in 2007 by Matthew Mossbroker, a museum director and chief curator. And because of this, the Morrison area is thought to have been a dinosaur nesting ground.
0: Cool. I mean, most of the earth was probably a dinosaur nesting ground at one point or another.
1: Yeah, but how often do you see those little tracks?
0: (laughs) That's true.
1: (laughs) Wonder how many of them got stuck in amber.
0: Maybe none. I don't know. (laughs) They might be a little big for that.
1: Oh, maybe. Well, I mean, if they're just hatched and then they walk around. I was just thinking of that bird. Yeah. (laughs) Next extinct monsters asked the question, do fossil exhibits have too many dinosaurs? My instinct is no, but, you know, I'm biased. So the idea is that paleontology is, quote, the study of how the world came to be and our understanding of the natural world is hopelessly incomplete without it. For the larger public, however, paleontology is synonymous with dinosaurs and this can be a problem, end quote. Which is interesting. I could see that. So this is because dinosaurs are just a small part of Earth's history. And one reason for the fascination with dinosaurs may be because we're familiar with them and educators use them to get people to talk about evolution, extinction, and the scientific method. And Extinct Monsters writes about having a baseline so that we could see if dinosaurs are actually overused in exhibits. So it looked at three paleontology exhibits, the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, the National Museum of Natural History in D.C., and the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And the findings, which he notes is uh, not at all scientific method kind of thing here. (laughs) But they found that there's about 31% of dinosaurs in the Field Museum, 15% in the National Museum of Natural History, and 40% in the American Museum of Natural History. Maybe that's why we like that one so much. (laughs) (laughs) So according to the post, this is around the right amount of space if you're estimating that there should be 30 to 35% of dinosaurs in an exhibit about life since the Cambrian. The post admits it's a crude way to measure, as I mentioned, but it could be a starting point. It seems to suggest that there's more to this than just asking the question if museums are overemphasizing dinosaurs. There's also, for example, the question of whether people ignore non-dinosaur paleontology outreach efforts and how to address that.
0: Yeah, there are. I mean, he basically picked the three dinosaur museums or the three museums in the US that have the most dinosaurs, though. Yeah. There are a lot of museums in the US that have zero dinosaurs or just have a couple of replicas. True. Especially when you go to areas where dinosaurs weren't around or they didn't have huge groups of paleontologists scouring the earth like the American Museum of Natural History does.
1: Yeah. So yeah, they made it everywhere.
0: Yeah. But I like his point that it should be 30 to 35% dinosaurs because they've been around for, you know, about half the time since vertebrates evolved mm-hmm. and there aren't a lot of fossils for pre-vertebrates, but there were a lot of other things around with dinosaurs, so I'm not sure if that math quite works out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they mentioned it was a crude way, yeah. but it's a starting point.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So that reminds me, the sauropod vertebrate picture of the week wrote this interesting post about a neglected theme in Paleo art, which is sauropod stomping turtles. <laughs> so Speaking of... You know, you have these dinosaur exhibits, but there was other fauna around. So the idea, <laughs> there's cases of modern herbivores eating meat, cows oh, yeah. and deer, for example.
0: Yeah, like cows, if, they, if they're grazing and they just like stumble upon some small animal, sometimes they'll just eat it. Mm-hmm. It's super creepy and weird.
1: So the idea is that sauropods were growing really quickly. And maybe sometimes they ate turtles for some quick protein and calcium. <laughs> <laughs> so what in theory could have happened is they could have stomped on the turtle so then they the turtle would be in bite-sized chunks oh jeez. maybe they stepped on them accidentally and that's how it started but (laughs) turtles and sauropods did often coexist so it's a very interesting idea
0: yeah that makes sauropods seem a lot less friendly
1: (laughs) it does (laughs) i mean if you got big enough you probably wouldn't even notice the turtle beneath you
0: or be like stepping on gum and you'd be like ew yeah. What was that? Oh, it was a turtle. Oh,
1: maybe I'll eat that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of paleo art, Transmitting Science is offering a scientific illustration course in Barcelona, Spain from November 20th to 24th. It's called the Art of Science Scientific Illustration, and it's meant to help scientists, science communicators, artists, and adults interested in natural history to develop observation and illustration skills to create scientifically accurate art. There's only 15 spots available, and it will require about 30 hours on site. The course costs 595 euros if you enroll by the end of July, or 745 euros if you enroll after that. It'll be taught by Julianne Snyder from the Earth and Mineral Sciences Museum and Art Gallery, which is located in the U.S.
0: It's a pretty heavy-duty course.
1: I know think of the sauropods you could illustrate stomping <laughs> on turtles <laughs> yeah, <I guess>
0: so.
1: <laughs> next in Kotlis Russia uh, they opened a new park full of life-sized dinosaurs and other prehistoric sculptures on June 10th and that area is where Vladimir Omelitsky found a bone bed in the late 1800s and it was the beginning of Russian paleontology so the figures are made of metal skeletons and filled with concrete and then painted and that's cool that they have a whole place devoted to the beginning of Russian paleontology. Yeah. In Denmark, Lego is building a Lego house, which will officially open on September 28th of this year. And according to the Brothers Brick, the house has three giant dinosaur models. Nice. Yeah. They're each nearly 10 feet or around three meters tall. And they're all of, it looks like T-Rex, but they're built on different systems. Duplo, Technic, and System. And I'm not, familiar duplo. enough but
0: duplos are the huge ones for like three-year-olds because i can't choke on them okay they're super lame nobody likes duplos uh,
1: has, the, this t-rex <laughs> came out pretty well
0: when you scale it up that big you still need like thousands of them so it'd be okay but like a typical duplo thing is like five duplos
1: <laughs> <laughs> you obviously need more to make a t-rex
0: by the time i was like four years old i was super over duplos and oh. ready for legos
1: well Anyway, fans built these dinosaurs, so some people are into Duplo.
0: It would take a lot less time to build a 10-foot tall thing out of Duplo, so I guess it's okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There are 26 fans who were invited to give creative input, and the idea was to build the dinosaur in three different systems to have different final models. They all appear to be roaring. They all look like they're stepping on a big Lego brick, which may be why they're roaring. (laughs) And (laughs) the the Technic dinosaur had nearly 300,000 parts the Duplo had over 50,000 parts, <laughs> so yeah, much less. Li- but that's still 50,000.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is a lot.
1: And they used bucket scoops for claws and a turtle for the eye. Huh.
0: And there's the turtles.
1: Yeah. They're all very colorful. There's red, green, and yellow. And the idea of Lego House is to allow fans to showcase their work. So hopefully there's more dinosaurs. Yeah. Duplo sauropod.
0: I remember the first time I saw the Lego dinosaurs at Legoland in the Mall of America when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. That was really exciting. And those (laughs) were so many pieces. I looked at it and I was like, oh, man, imagine how much time they spent making that dinosaur.
1: So much time. (laughs) Would have been glorious. (laughs) They have to map it out beforehand. Yeah, I'm sure. Next, GameSpot is saying that Jurassic World 2... Jurassic World 2 news, it's been a while, is going to be a Spanish horror thriller, which I only got one comment about that. Spanish horror thriller? Yeah, that's that's what the article said. <laughs> yeah,
0: that, that seems a little clickbaity. That's just because Bayona's directing it and that's what his last movie was.
1: Yeah, and Colin Trevorrow has been talking up the movie. And he said, quote, Bayona is a completely different kind of filmmaker and thinker than I am, yet we do have a lot of things in common. I was able to craft something specifically for another filmmaker that I admire. I built a Spanish horror thriller with dinosaurs in it that I probably wouldn't have built for myself, end quote. There you go. So that's where they got that line. (laughs) Yeah. And he said it's more character based with a lot of suspense. And in addition to having Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt, we'll have James Cromwell, Toby Jones, Rafe Spall, and of course, Jeff Goldblum. Next, this might be my favorite. Well, uh, that's hard to say. There's so much news. (laughs) Anyway, artist Chris Rodley has created this neural network that takes illustrations of dinosaurs and redesigns them as flowers and fruit. So it merges the dinosaurs with flowers and then gives them flowery skin or, in another example, body parts made of fruit. It's really cool. And he sells prints on his website. We might have to get one, Garrett.
0: Yeah, they do look really cool.
1: Mm-hmm. I really like the fruit one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've got like an orange for a head kind of thing, and mm-hmm. then like little slices of fruit for different body parts kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Really pretty. Really colorful.
0: Yeah. It almost reminds me of like a Hawaiian shirt or something.
1: But better. Yeah. So obviously. much better. <laughs> Speaking of art, Love in the Time of Chasmosaur shared artist Gabriel Ugueta's posters of dinosaurs and other paleofauna. So he's created some really cool posters that show phylogenetically geological formations and the animals that live there. So there's posters of dinosaurs and pterosaurs of the Wessex Formation in the UK, dinosaurs and pterosaurs of Las Hoyas in Spain, as well as some tetrapods and other paleofauna. Cool. We have a few news items about books. So first, the publisher First second has a comic (laughs) called Science Comics Dinosaurs that's up for the Eisner Awards for comics this year. And it's an educational nonfiction series, shows dinosaurs through a scientific and historical perspective. It also covers what we don't know yet about dinosaurs. The illustrations are full of facts, and there's even panels showing the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, which I really liked.
0: Nice. When I see the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, I assume people did a good amount of research.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. There's also a new Dinosaur Kids book called Dad and the Dinosaur by Jennifer Childenko and Dan Santet that recently came out. So NWI reviewed the book. It sounds very sweet. In the book, the protagonist, Nicholas, wants to be a brave boy like his dad, but he's (laughs) afraid of bugs and nighttime and everything else. And he has a dinosaur that he keeps in his pocket, and that keeps him safe because, you know, dinosaurs aren't afraid of anything. But one day Nicholas loses his dinosaur, and it sounds like his dad comes to the rescue to make him feel better.
0: So this is a toy dinosaur, not a real dinosaur? Yeah. Oh.
1: I'm getting to the other dinosaur books. (laughs) Actually, there's just one more. So there's another children's book out called Tiny Dinosaurs by Joel Stewart. And this book is about Daisy, who loves dinosaurs and finds a small T-Rex and friends in her backyard. And she and her dog Rex go on a quest to find these dinosaurs, and what I really like is it's great to see a book with a girl protagonist with an interest in dinosaurs.
0: Yeah. And they're real dinosaurs, which also makes it better.
1: And there you go. <laughs> but yeah, we should It'd be nice to see more girl things with dinosaurs. Yep. Unlike Party City, where I try to get some dinosaur decorations for a birthday party, an adult birthday party. <laughs> And all they have is dinosaur stuff for six-year-old boys, specifically.
0: As as a for instance, not at all related (laughs) to anything Sabrina's done lately.
1: Not bitter at all. Anyway, (laughs) according to Kotaku, there's going to be a new Mario game coming out on October 27th called Super Mario Odyssey. And you can play as a dinosaur. Ooh. In the trailer, you see this T-Rex stomping around and roaring. Then Mario pops out of the T-Rex, I guess because he's no longer the T-Rex. No. And you see Mario going all over the world running and jumping. There's a lot of familiar characters, Goombas and Princess Peach, and a lot of new characters and animations. And it looks pretty fun. And like you can, seems like you could do a fair amount as a T-Rex. Nice. So we'll have to play it when it comes out. I guess so. <laughs> Next, there were multiple basketball teams that were vying for NBA player Paul George and one Toronto Raptors fan on Reddit, Dorito Pope, said that he would tattoo a dinosaur on his butt if the Raptors didn't get Paul George. (laughs) And he said to do it, he would need 2,000 upvotes. He ended up getting 26,000 upvotes in 12 hours. So (laughs) it seems more likely that George will end up with the Lakers or Cavaliers. Um, By the time this airs, he might already be on another team.
0: (laughs) And that guy might already have a new tattoo on his butt.
1: Yep. (laughs) He did say on the Reddit thread, and I go, no, I guess I have to do it now. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And last in the news, Merriam-Webster, you may or may not know, has developed a reputation for being very witty on Twitter. So the account Sue the T-Rex, which I didn't realize that one existed, but there's an (laughs) account Sue the T-Rex that tried to start a feud and was quickly shut down. So what happened was Sue the T-Rex polled her followers for what they'd like to see more of, and 32%, the majority, said they wanted more random feuds. So then Sue the T-Rex tweeted, Coming for you, at Miriam Webster. And Miriam Webster's response was, We're out of your reach. Right. And then one user, Johansson, posted a GIF of the asteroid hitting Earth, and Sue responded with, And I'm immediately dunked on. Mm. As 22 Words put it, it's important to learn from her mistakes. Uh, you... Probably wouldn't win against a dictionary and, quote, after all, she's a tyrannosaurus, not a thesaurus.
0: Nah. <laughs> Lots of good puns. Mm-hmm. Just to be pedantic, 32% was probably a plurality and not a majority.
1: Okay. <laughs> I don't
0: want to get any emails about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it got the most votes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Therefore, plurality.
1: Okay. <laughs> And now onto the dinosaur of the day, Siats, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602 via YouTube. So thanks. It was a megaraptor and theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Utah in the U.S. The name comes from Siats, which is a predatory man-eating monster in Uday Native American mythology. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good source for a dinosaur name, a man-eating monster. Yes.
1: <laughs> There's only one species. Siats meekerorum. The species name is in honor of John Caldwell Meeker, a geologist who bequeathed the fund for paleontological research at the Field Museum in Chicago, as well as for his wife Withrow and his daughter Lise. It was described and named by Lindsay Zano and Peter McAvicki in 2013. And Lindsay found Siats in a 2008 expedition of the Field Museum led by Peter. They collected it between 2008 and 2010. It was possibly the first neovenatorid found in North America and the youngest geologically allosauroid. The holotype consists of a partial postcranial skeleton, vertebrae, a chevron, partial right ilium, partial left tibia, some phalanges. and the holotype is now at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. It's a juvenile. The neural arches of vertebrae weren't not yet fused, so that means it wasn't fully grown. No cranial materials were found except for some teeth, so how its skull looked is based on relatives. It possibly had a pointy-ish head.
0: (laughs) Is that the technical term, pointy-ish?
1: Yes, that's the scientific accurate term. (laughs) It had long three-clawed arms. It may have had large claws. Those weren't found, but this is based on close relatives such as Australovenator and Megaraptor. It's one of the largest known theropods in North America. Lindsay and Peter estimated it to be up to 39 feet or 12 meters long and weighing about 4 tons. It may have been similar in size to saurophagonex and acrocanthosaurus. It's
0: a big guy. Yeah. A man-eater, one might say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. If the size estimates are correct, siats would have been one of the largest predators found in North America, and it may have been an apex predator. I guess if it eats man. Yeah. (laughs) Because
0: we're the apex predator, so anything that eats us is automatically an apex predator, Mm -hmm. I guess.
1: (laughs) If Siats is a Neovenatorid, it shows that allosauroids still dominated North America, not tyrannosauroids, until the late Cretaceous. But until last year, there was a lot of debate on how to classify megaraptors. They were either neovenatorids or tyrannosauroids. Studies of other Megaraptorans have shown that they are carnosaurs that had tyrannosauroid-like features via convergent evolution.
0: That tricky convergent
1: evolution messes it all up. It does. <laughs> <laughs> so early tyrannosaurs that lived at the time of Siets would have been small. And when Siets lived, most herbivores were hadrosauroids and notosaurs, but shortly after siats ceratopsians and ankylosaurs started thriving and they would have been too hard for siats to handle and that may be what allowed tyrannosaurs to grow and thrive they were more suited to tackling these tougher prey animals
0: and shattering their bones <laughs> yeah and our fun fact of the day is that plant fossils are much more common than fossilized bones like dinosaur bones but the two are rarely found together And that's not because they didn't get buried together or they weren't in the same areas, but because sediments that preserve bones the best are typically alkaline or basic, whereas sediments that preserve plants the best are typically acidic. So whatever you end up seeing preserved depends on the actual chemistry of the soil rather than what was around at the time. And that's one of the things we talk about when we talk about this preservation bias. So it can be a little bit tricky to figure out what dinosaurs might have been eating because you're never really going to find one preserved with (laughs) the plant it was eating right there, unfortunately. You have to go through a little more complicated mechanisms.
1: And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Again, fill out our survey, tell us what you like, what you would like to see in the future from us, and if you'd like to join our growing group of dinosaur enthusiasts, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com/inodino. Thanks again and until next time. Good